Would you stand with me as we read, please? We're reading Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. We're making our way uh, through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And at the beginning of the sermon series, I told you that a helpful image or a helpful metaphor, which to understand the letter as a whole, is the story of David and Goliath, in the sense that when David defeats Goliath, his victory, you know, he stands in Israel's place. Israel is afraid and beaten down, and there's a giant that seems uh, undefeatable. And David stands in Israel's place, he defeats the giant. But once he's defeated the giant, he doesn't simply say, okay, I'm going to go now fight all the rest of the Philistines. Right? It's at the point of his victory over Goliath that the rest of Israel realizes that David's victory is their victory. Then they rally right, to David's victory and then pursue the Philistines themselves. Now, this is what Paul is doing in his letter. In the first three chapters of his letter, he has said... Uh, Christ has been victorious over the giant. He has defeated sin and death, and you are united to him, and by virtue of being united to him, you too stand victorious over sin and death. But the realization of Christ's victory does not mean then that you sit down 
and put your feet up until Jesus comes again, or you simply watch as Jesus takes on all the rest of the enemies that we have. No, it is a rallying cry to understand Jesus' victory. It's to understand now that you've been called to participate in that victory and to extend it. Right? In the same way that Israel rallies at David's victory, Paul is calling the people to rally to Jesus' victory. And he makes this transition fairly dramatically at the beginning of chapter 4. We're halfway through the book. And the first half is talking about what has been accomplished in Christ's victory. And the next three chapters of Ephesians is all about now what we're called to do. What we're supposed to be busy about, how we're supposed to relate to one another so that we rally to this call and we participate in the extension of Christ's victory. We participate in his ongoing campaign. That's what the rest of the letter is going uh, to look like as we, as we go through it. And what we're going to see, even at the beginning, is that our opinion of the church is far too low. Uh, Ephesians has more to say about the church than most other books in the New Testament. And even in these verses, verses 1 through 16, Paul offers us one of what we would call the highest ecclesiologies, which means the, the most beautiful and most thought-out doctrines of the church and it reveals to us why the church is essential, why it's not negotiable, and why we often have too low a view of it. And I think for some of you, you're frustrated with God, frustrated with God's work in your life, frustrated that He's not been faithful as you would expect Him to be faithful. And for some of you, that frustration is born out of a lack of faith in God, at least in part. But for some of you, that frustration is born out of a lack of faith in the church. And some of you have been burned by the church, and I acknowledge that, and I don't mean to judge your story at all. And I think it's probably quite true because the church has done a really good job of burning many people. That does not, however, excuse us from understanding the lofty vision that Paul holds out for the church. It does not excuse us from aspiring to be who we're called to be. And thus uh, experiencing the fullness of Christ in the church. Right? To not aspire to who we're called to be means that we miss out on actually experiencing the person of Jesus Christ in the context of our fellowship. So what does Paul envision for the church? He says that we've been, uh, he challenges the church in in Ephesus, he challenges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And for Paul, there's only one calling. You know, sometimes uh, in Christian circles, you can hear people talk about calling as if, well, I'm wondering if I've been called to do X or called to do Y. And that's really kind of a funny language and a little bit dangerous in some ways. Because for Paul, there's only one calling. He never talks about calling in the plural. Every time he talks about calling, it is that you have been called to be unified with Christ and are now servants of the risen Christ in this world. Right? There is no, uh, there's no um, multitude of callings for various saints. Now, there are multitude of gifts and multitude of roles that we play. But in terms of calling, you have been called out of darkness into light, You have been called to be unified to the Savior. You have been called to be His ambassador in this world until He should come again. And that's it. You're either faithful to that call or not faithful to that call. And there's no other call, and there's not really a third option. So what does it mean when Paul says that the church should walk worthy of this calling? What does it look like to walk worthily? Well, he starts in kind of an unexpected place. Starts by uh, listing a number of qualities uh, that are true of what this walking will look like. But even keep in mind as we're moving through the rest of the book of Ephesians, 
In terms of understanding our ethic as a church, walking is going to be an essential metaphor for Paul. In 4.17, he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In 5.2, he commands us to walk in love. In 5.8, we're to walk as children of light. And in 5.15, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So how is your walk? This is a metaphor that Paul will use uh, significantly through the rest of the letter to describe, are you actually moving in a direction uh, that honors your calling, that's worthy of what Christ has done on your behalf? And to describe this, he talks about a number of qualities, and the first one is humility. What does it look like to walk in a worthy fashion? Paul starts with humility. Now, that's not where I would necessarily have expected him to start. And it wasn't a very popular characteristic back then. In fact, the word uh, had a negative connotation in the ancient world. It referred to kind of the crouching posture of a slave. It was negative in the sense that you lacked an adequate self-respect. And Paul says this is actually what it means to walk worthy. Not to have a high uh, uh, evaluation of oneself. Not to think more highly of oneself than one ought, but instead to be humble. And he goes on from there to talk about gentleness and meekness. Right? Gentleness in the ESV, it's often translated meekness. Again, not a, an attribute that we hold on a high pedestal. Right? You don't run to see the latest movie and the hero of which is characterized by his humility and meekness or gentleness. Right? That's not how we define heroism. I don't think there's any candidate in the presidential race on either side of the aisle that demonstrates to me humility and meekness. But these are the very characteristics that mark out our, our, our walking if it's worthy of the calling that we have. Paul goes on to talk about patience, which is, and it's not just patience like, oh, I can wait at this red light and not become the Hulk. That's not the kind of patience we're talking about. Kind of patience we're talking about is particularly in relationship. It's steadfastness. It's forbearance uh, with other people. It's what informs this next clause, which is bearing with one another in love. Which if we were to translate it in really kind of how we talk today, uh, Paul would say uh, it's, it's how you put up with each other in love. In other words, the church in Ephesus isn't, in some ways, isn't that different from us. That we rub each other the wrong way. We offend each other. Right? We make each other mad. We say unkind things. We're selfish and we're jealous. And as a result of that, Paul knows that just for them as well as for us, if we're going to walk in a, in a fashion that's worthy of our calling, we have to put up with each other in love. We have to understand that we're all operating out of broken stories and sometimes we lash out against each other and hurt one another. And this is uh, all the more significant for the church in Ephesus because, as we've said all along, Jew and Gentile are being brought together, and they've never been brought together before. And Paul knows that if the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers can't get along, then what that's going to communicate is the wall of hostility has not actually been broken down. And if the wall of hostility has not been broken down, then God has not been successful to fulfill His promises to the Jew or to the win the Gentile. And if God has not been faithful to his promises, then the whole thing is a wash. Right? There's a lot riding. This is why Paul then proceeds to talk about the importance of uh, embracing a, uh, a spirit of unity. 
And he goes on to quote uh, the creed that uh, you are, um, that there is one Lord and one spirit and one faith and one baptism. Paul says that your unity in the church is essential. Now, what, an, what a fascinating description of what Paul expects the church to be. And from even this initial description, we can note a few things. And the first one is that you need your neighbor. Right? Your neighbor, the person sitting next to you and the person sitting across the aisle from you, is non-negotiable. Why? Because you're called to exhibit love. And love is not an abstract notion. It's not some, Paul would never allow anyone to say to themselves, well, I think I'm a loving person. Paul would say, show me. How are you demonstrating humility? How are you demonstrating gentleness? How are you demonstrating forbearance and putting up with each other? That's what love is. That's what God has demonstrated to you in Christ. So how are you demonstrating that and actually promoting the oneness of the body? Now we realize that we need one another, but that this is also, as a result of what Paul is saying, a primary community. And by primary community, what I mean is uh, we're called into to be one new person in Christ. And as a result of that, all other relationships uh, are secondary. And some of you don't like hearing that. I'm sorry. Your biological relationships, they're secondary. Your friendships, the people you most like to hang out with, they're secondary. They're the people who gather with you in this building. The membership that covenants together. Why? Because it is this, this you would never hang out with each other right, apart from being in this church. You come from different socioeconomic places. You have different interests and different backgrounds. And your lives overlap primarily because you've been called by Christ to be joined together, to be knit together. Right? Where's Paul going? He's going to the image of the body that we are all linked together in an organic way with Christ as the head in whom we're being built up. And to the degree that we allow relationships outside of the relationships here to trump these relationships, we deprive ourselves of experiencing the person of Christ, the head of this body. Now, some of you, I'm, I'm concerned, may hear, I think you may hear me as saying, um, just you know, do more, get more invested. You know, I expect you to do more in the church. That is not what I'm trying to say, although it's not going to hurt any of you. Right, But what I'm trying to say is something far deeper and more significant, which is to the degree that you hold the relationships in this church at arm's length is the same degree to which you deprive yourself of experiencing the person of Christ. Right? That's a very big deal. For Paul, the person of Christ is experienced, is recognized in the body of believers as we relate to one another. That's what he's saying here, and this is why it's essential that they come together and remain united. Right? And it's when we love one another in real and deep ways, right? that we build each other up. Over the years, I've had people who have come to me and said, Ryan, you know, your preaching isn't half as good as you think it is. But they said that in love. And they said, Ryan, you're drinking too much. And they said that in love. And they said, Ryan, I know that, you know, nine times out of ten, somebody comes to you because they want something. What can I give to you? And they said that in love. And in each of those instances, I know that I am being loved by Christ. Right? It is the hands and the feet of the Messiah himself ministering to me as we experience those relationships in this body. That's what Paul's holding out as he begins to Describe, and this is why I'm suggesting to you at the beginning we have a view of the church that is much too low. 
And that is one of our biggest problems. So, how in the world are we going to do this? How in the world are we going to demonstrate this level of love? Because, let's be frank, most of you are obnoxious. You are annoying. How are we going to labor together in love? Well, Paul says that we're equipped for this. Paul equips the church, or Jesus equips the church. We haven't been left without being uh, equipped for this task. Now, this is a a tricky bit of Scripture here, as as Paul uh, talks about the one who um, ascended, also descended. He's quoting Psalm 68, which celebrates the victory of God. And in the victory of God, he, um, in his victory, he wins men as his captives, and they're in his train of victory. And he gives gifts to them. And this is what Paul is saying, that Christ, in his victory, has won captives. You, right? You are in the train of Christ's victory as the victorious warrior. And to some of these, he's given to the church to equip the church. And the notion here is not that, um, we don't have time to get into it, but if you want to let, you know, there are two places where part of the history of the church, you know, let's just not get into it. Let's move on. That was enough of that. So what is Paul given the church? Officers, uh, or different, not officers, offices, uh, leadership to build up the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and really the shepherds and teachers go together. It should be understood kind of in the sense of a shepherding teacher or a pastor. These are the people that God has given to the church to what? Look at verses 12 and 13. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So uh, people are given to lead the church, to build it up, to equip all the saints for ministry so that they can in turn continue to build up the church uh, in ministry. Right? It's kind of this ongoing pyramid scheme of building the church up in ministry. That probably wasn't a very good metaphor, but anyway... Uh, now, this is, uh, I, str- I stood up late last night because I really didn't know what to say about this. I didn't, I didn't know how to preach this with any integrity. And uh, the reason for that tension is I went to Presbytery this week. And Presbytery happens four times a year. It's the gathering of all the, the uh, pastors in our geographical uh, region. And Presbytery was rough this weekend. It started off with, uh, you know, we were in a city, and in the city there's a church that hosts. And so uh, the hosting church, usually the hosting um, the pastor gets up and leads worship on Friday night, and we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, so on and so forth. And typically in the host city, you know, you would invite the people around you in that host city to lead with you. Well, it's odd because uh, the church invited ministers who lived far away to participate in the hosting and didn't invite ministers that lived within that city to participate in the hosting. And I thought, well, this is odd. And so come to find out there's just a lot of tension between the ministers in that city. There's, see, a church plant has gone into the city, which the, uh, the, church did, the main church didn't want to happen because, you know, you're afraid of losing people and it being competition. But there was also an RUF minister, a college minister, and he decided that he should probably go with the, uh, the new church plant. You know, the Trinity Hymnal isn't necessarily the most effective uh, way to reach out to college students. 
but the church was hurt, and so they, um, they had always allowed him to office in the church, and they kicked him out, and they cut off all his funding. And that's, that's a very big deal. It was a very big chunk of change. Right? So we're gathered as ministers, and uh, the minister is preaching on how, uh, you know, we are to decrease so that Christ might increase. I said, they're thinking, man, do you, do you hear yourself? Right? You're punishing people as the gospel has opportunity to increase in this community. Right? And then are, are you really in a place that you should go to the Lord's table? Are you showing the kind of patience and gentleness and you know, humility that Paul is talking about in this passage? Well, we broke up Friday night and resumed a Saturday, in which Saturday we often examine candidates for ministry, and that's good and important. We, if somebody's going to go out and pass their church, we want to make sure that they're reasonably competent. But some of the questions were so incredibly erudite. There was one question that was asked that, was, that is so controversial and so sophisticated theologically that it's divided seminaries and broken up theological societies over the last 15 years. Right? Do we really think that someone who's just entering in the ministry needs to demonstrate that level of sophistication to pastor a church? It wasn't all about the person coming for ordination. It was all about demonstrating what someone knew and exercising power right, and significance. Right? And again, it had nothing to do with what Paul's talking about. There was no humility the question was absurd and nowhere near to anything that the, the ordinate needed to know in order to be ordained. And then we started to debate. Uh, people were asking questions and wondering, well, can we really let someone be a member if they're not going to baptize their children? Listen, I believe in infant baptism. I'm ordained in a denomination that practices infant baptism. If you've been through the intro to the church class, you know this. I will also tell you, as I tell every intro class, that it's not abundantly clear in Scripture. And it's not part of our membership vows. And if you want to be a member of this church, but really feel that you should be baptized on profession of faith, why would I exclude you from the one Lord and the one Spirit and the one baptism that characterizes the new people of God over something that is so, uh, so unclear? And so this is, I was up, late last night and just thinking okay i'm supposed to stand up here and tell you christ has given uh teachers and shepherds for the church so that you can be equipped and built up and we're uh we're miserably failing so what am i supposed to say to you like i i just said we friday and saturday i think we are blowing it so i think all i can say to you this morning is i'm sorry I think on behalf of, of the guild in which I am part, I need to uh, say I'm sorry and ask your forgiveness. So I think we're doing a lousy job of equipping you. I think we're doing a lousy job of building you up to engage in ministry. Now, I don't think that lets me or you off the hook, right? But I do think that's part of the humility that we need to pursue in terms of if we're going to move forward in a healthy direction, we better take time to at least define part of our sickness and part of our weakness, and so in that, I will aspire to do better and urge the presbytery to do better as well. Because if we don't, we're just left to being children. Now, this is where Paul is headed, that to walk in a worthy fashion ultimately means maturing. 
It means being a grown-up in the church. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus will talk about how you need to be a child in some ways to come to Jesus. And that's important, and you don't want to lose that. But Paul's using this language a bit differently, right? And the, saying that you, in some ways you don't want to remain a child because children, well, any idea might seem good to them. And they might be thrown back and forth between different ideas. And what Paul says is to be mature is to really grow up in the fullness and stature of Christ. To be mature is to look like Jesus. That's how you know when someone is actually mature in the faith. There's a beautiful picture of this in the middle of Prince Caspian, which is one of the Chronicles of Narnia. And this this is one of my favorite places in all of the Chronicles of Narnia. A little background, right, boys and girls, you know this story. At least some of you do, right? There's uh, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Patrice. Lucy, that's right, Lucy. Okay, thank you. And Lucy's actually the one I want to talk about because uh, the four of them in the middle of Prince Caspian, they're traveling on the countryside and they're supposed to get from point A to point B. And uh, as they're uh, trying to make that journey, they're not really sure which way to go. But at one point, Aslan appears, but he appears only to Lucy. And so Lucy says, hey, everybody, Aslan has appeared to me and shown me the way to go. Well, how do you think the brothers and sisters reply? Well, that way looks a lot harder. And why did he just show up to you alone, Lucy? You're the youngest, right? There are a few people here more sophisticated and more knowledgeable. Right? And we really think we should go the other way. And we, everybody knows you have a very big imagination. And so uh, Lucy can't persuade her brothers and sisters to go in the direction that Aslan says they should go. And she knows at the time that she is supposed to go whether her brothers and sisters go or not. But instead, in the moment, she's persuaded to go with her brothers and sisters and not to follow after Aslan. Well, later on, they, of course, go in the wrong direction. It ends up to be worse than where they were before, and the other way would have been much better. Uh, But Lucy is woken up in the night and drawn into the woods, and there she meets Aslan. And for a moment, she has, uh, she's comforted by his presence, but it's not long before Aslan pursues her and says, Lucy, he said, we must not lie here for long. You have work in hand, and much time has been lost today. Yes, wasn't it a shame, said Lucy. I saw you all right. They wouldn't believe me. They're all so, from somewhere deep inside Aslan's body, there came the faintest suggestion of a growl. I'm sorry, said Lucy who understood some of his moods. I didn't mean to start slanging the others, but it wasn't my fault anyway, was it? The lion looked straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, you don't mean it was. How could I? I couldn't have left the others and come up to you alone. How could I? Don't look at me like that. Oh, well, I suppose I could. Yes, and it wouldn't have been alone, I know, not if I was with you. But what would have been the good? Aslan said nothing. You mean, said Lucy rather faintly, that it would have turned out all right somehow. But how? Please, Aslan, am I not to know? To know what would have happened, child, said Aslan. No, nobody has ever told that. So Lucy knows that she's been summoned to follow Christ. But instead, she's persuaded, not wanting to fall out with her brothers and sisters and not wanting to travel alone. 
she goes with them. And Aslan says it would have turned out much better whether you came with them or came alone if you were obedient and trusted. What a great picture of childhood, how we would be fearful to follow after Jesus. And even as grown-ups, you may be 80 years old and still be wrestling with actually following Jesus and being willing to trust him alone if that's what he beckons you to do. And so Lucy uh, repents of a sort and says, what, okay, what do you want me to do? And Aslan ultimately says, well, I want you to go back and do the same thing again. Go tell them that you've seen me, even though I haven't appeared to them, and that there's to go in this direction. And Lucy's like, this is going to be worse than the first time, right? We've already been through this once. How am I going to do this a second time? And Aslan essentially says, well, it's not up to you whether or not you'll be successful. It's just up to you whether or not you're going to obey me. And ultimately, she decides to, and Aslan says, now you're a lioness, and now all of Narnia will be transformed. That's a great picture of what it means to be a grown-up, to be mature in the full stature of Christ, to understand his bidding and to say, yes, I will follow where you lead. The consequences, they are largely left up to you because they are out of my control. And it's when we as individuals and then we as a community start to act that way that we grow up, that we mature in Christ. And Paul describes it in verse 15. It says in, your, in the ESV, speaking the truth in love. That's not really the notion. The problem is that um, we don't have an English word for what the Greek is saying. Literally, the Greek says that we are called to be truthing in love. But we don't have a word for truthing. Right? But it's an important difference because it's not simply about speaking. It certainly includes speaking. But what Paul is saying is that when you're mature in Christ, you actually are committed to an embodiment of truth. Now, another way that we get tripped up on this is that we tend to think of truth in a very abstract propositional form. Like, okay, if I'm embodying truth, I confess the creed correctly. I've memorized my catechism questions. Or 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's all truth. That's not really an ancient idea of truth, and it's certainly not a Judeo-Christian notion of truth. A Judeo-Christian notion of truth is a notion of, of, uh, of covenantal faithfulness. When you, if you were to go into the ancient world and say, uh, are you a true person or not? They wouldn't talk about what they knew. They would talk about whether or not they've been faithful to who they're called to be. Whether or not they've been faithful to the promises they've made and the commitments they've made. That's the kind of truth that Paul is talking about. It's the kind of maturity that we would be truthing one another in love. That we would be, as we engage a covenant here together. Right? We make promises and commitments to one another to follow after Christ, to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to support one another. In that covenant, are we actually truthing one another in love? I had an interesting experience recently, um, which this happens somewhat frequently, but um, I mean, not all the time. But So uh, someone came up to me and said, you know, so-and-so is really upset about such-and-such. It didn't go the way they expected. They're frustrated. Um, you may need to deal with this. And I th- I'm thinking to myself, well, that's really funny because why that was unfolding, I checked with so-and-so on three different occasions and asked how it was going. And they told me it was going great, that everything was fine, and, uh, and not to worry, it was fantastic. Well, if, if you're not going to truth, be truthing me in love, 
it's hard for you, it's not very uh, realistic for you to uh, expect to be truth and love, right? So that person was willing to give an earful to someone else, but not to me. What would happen if we were a community that, that grew to the degree and loved one another and had such forbearance with one another and such step that we could say all kinds of things to each other? You know, you really frustrated me. Why did you say that? You know, sometimes I think you're a real pill. And on and on. And to say, okay, well, why do you think that? You know, maybe there's something of which I need to repent. And I'm not a child who's suddenly thrown into all insecurities because of what you've said. And I'm mature because I'm being located in Christ. And know at the end of the day, his leading and you ministering to me in the context of that leading will result in beauty and grace and change. It's in this true thing in love that we grow up in every way into him who is the head uh, into Christ in verse 15. And in verse 16, it shows us that we become the body that we are intended to be, joined and held together by every going with which it is equipped, which each part is wor- uh, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When we actually aspire to this maturity, we become this ridiculously unique community on the entire face of the earth in which we love one another with, with such a depth that it speaks of the love of Christ to the entire world. And again, I will remind you that we grossly underestimate the significance of the church and the degree to which you are unwilling to invest in this notion is the degree to which you will deprive yourself of experiencing the risen Christ. Who of you, on your last day, when you meet Jesus face to face, what will your regret be? Would you really suggest to me that your regret would be, oh, if only I could have put my kid in one more sports program. Or, oh, if only I could have gotten that renovation done on the house. Or, oh, if I had just gotten that last promotion, I could have ended my last 20 years with 20 more K a year. Or if only I escaped a little bit more. Life was hard. Why did I engage it? Do you really think any of those things are going to come out of your mouth when you meet the risen Christ? You may have a regret. It won't be any of those, but it will be this. Why did I not pour myself into being the part of body that I was? Why did I not take my gift in this and engage the body of Christ and experience more of Christ so that I would be more ready for this day and that I would see more change happen on the earth through the church? Let us spur one another on that we would not voice that regret together. Let's pray. Jesus, your mercy is abundant, and in your victory over sin and death, you have led a train of captives of which we are a glorious part. Um, You have given gifts to us to build the church up. And would you please help us to grow, grow in maturity in you, to put away childish things, to not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but instead to long to be like you, to to long to be found in you. And so... Would you help us to mature and would you help us to be characterized by such ridiculous humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance that we would be built up into the body that you intend us to be. We ask you for your grace uh, toward us in this.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.